0: Welcome everybody, my name is Bakal Nasrani, and this is Islam for Christians, episode 33, Biblical Figures in Islam, part 1, In the Beginning. Imagine someone writes a book, but rather than binding it, copying it, and doing all the things that would make it easy for people to read it, he simply took a few hundred pages to the top of the tallest building in a major modern city. Let's say he takes the pages and then one by one tosses them into the wind a thousand feet in the air. Now, let's say you live in that city. To what lengths would you go to find those pages and piece the story together? It would help to have some, well, help (laughs) to have a group. So imagine a group effort to find the pages and piece it together. Would all that effort be worth it? especially considering these pages are not numbered at all. The answer, as with most things in life, is maybe. It would depend on how good the author was and how important you consider the literature to be. Just how much does the human race need this knowledge? Now, in the Islamic case, the person on the roof was God. The people picking up the pieces were Muhammad, and more so the compilers of what we know now as the Quran. They numbered the pages and gave it some organization. But the funny thing is, you know, for the monumental effort required to compile and maintain the Quran in its original form, Christians still feel their reading pages thrown from a rooftop. You know, this feeling Is particularly true of familiar characters and stories when a Christian is looking through the Quran. Because sometimes the information is in a dozen different places, or the whole story is not told, or there are some major details that seem to be missing. You know, it's frustrating for a people of religion whose holy book is quite literally a compilation of several authors. Yes, it is, but with a beginning, several acts, a clear overriding story arc and an ending. But as I mentioned in an earlier episode, the Quran is nothing like the Torah or the Christian Bible. You know, I think in many cases when stories are told, the point was not to preserve a historical event in writing. The Quran tells stories for the same reason Jesus did, to make a moral point. The Quran is more about spiritual lessons than narratives, and sometimes the stories are used to make a certain point. You often hear something like, Remember when we, we referring to God, or you'll hear or read. Have you forgotten the story of the old prophet? Insert name here, lesson to follow. Particularly during Muhammad's years in Medina, it does seem that much of this was revealed in an atmosphere where the biblical stories were at least somewhat familiar to the audience. You know, these stories were just kind of floating around in the culture, at least a little bit. You know, in a way, you can think of it as the last two of the synoptic gospels. Uh, For those of you not familiar with this, Mark is the main source for every gospel except John. Mark provided the bare bones, associated press breaking story version of everything, and then Matthew and Luke added other sources to that narrative's basic structure. You have something similar in the Quran, which tends to add on, expand on, or give a new lesson on an existing already known story, and on some occasions it gives a different version meant to override the original story. And that is the subject of this series of episodes, focusing on the Quranic differences of key figures and their stories as compared to the Bible. So, Obviously, the main reason to do this is to inform you of the differences between the biblical and Quranic accounts. But aside from the simple differences, try to think about what the differences mean as you're listening to them. You know, just a few examples of what I'm talking about here. Adam and Eve. We'll get into that soon because obviously it's the first story. When you hear the differences in the story, try to think about what the theological consequences of those differences will be, particularly in terms of sin and salvation. And in all these stories, think of the Islamic archetype, the Islamic style of prophet, compared to the Judeo-Christian one. Does one come off better than the other? And what are the different messages being sent? Okay, so let's just dive right into the beginning. Adam and Eve in the garden and Satan and all of that. Uh, Because the figures in the Quran are all over the place, I'll be using the biblical chronology for this series. It's just simpler that way. Although really the timeline, as you can think of it, theoretically should be the same in both religions. So we start with Adam. He's all by himself in the garden of Eden Eve will come in later, but she doesn't play nearly as large a role in the Islamic story. Just to clear, I'm not repeating the biblical story. This is the Islamic story. (laughs) Um, Before we even get to Eve and apples and snakes, there's a very unique narrative taking place with God, Adam, and the angels at the beginning of the world. And Satan is created almost from the start. Uh, at least who Christians know as Satan. Uh, The figure will be called Iblis. We'll get to that in a sec. So how did that happen? The story, in true Quranic style, is scattered all over the place. But the narrative goes something like this. God decides he's going to place a viceroy on the earth, or a viceroy. It's not one of those words I've ever heard spoken, so I'm just going to say... Viceroy. For those not familiar with this English term, it's like a king or an overseer. And this king is Adam, who was made of clay or dirt. And by the way, he has the same name in the Quran as in the Bible, exactly the same. So the angels are understandably upset by the promotion of this new creature, and they object to it in a very unangelic way. This is from Surah 2, Ayat 30 of the Quran. They said, meaning the angels, Will you place upon it one who causes corruption therein and sheds blood, while we exalt you with praise and declare your perfection? They're talking to God. He, Allah, said, Indeed, I know that which you do not know. So God is basically saying what he said to Job in the Bible. Who are you to judge? What do you know compared to me? So the angels eventually fall in line. You know, they're angels. What else are they going to do? And God teaches Adam all the names. Now, on the surface, this means the names of the animals, the plants, and the rocks, and all those things but I have also seen it translated as the secrets of the universe. The word in question is the, the Arabic word ism, which means name, uh, as in ba-ism-Allah, bismillah, in the name of God, you know, the thing you hear at the beginning of every surah. But this word in this context can also be used for someone who can think conceptually to use that unique human ability to recognize patterns and unravel complex things. You know, to name things and link them together, to think. That's what it means to know the names. This separates man from the animals and the angels because man can think. So now Adam knew the names and still the angels knew none of the names were the secrets of the universe. And that shut them up pretty quickly. So Adam was now the Lord of the earth, king of this new realm. And because of that, God ordered the angels to bow down to Adam. And they did. Now, let's pause for a second here to think of the implications of that. The angels are bowing down to Adam. Now, I was always curious as to what God saw in humans. You know, what he loved so much that made someone like him show any interest in things like us. Uh, Having a child kind of gives you a glimpse into what God sees in people. But still, you could say I always had a very low view of humans, which makes this doubly perplexing. Where in the Bible are humans ever portrayed in a position above angels? Perhaps Jacob wrestling the angel? You know, and I believe that was a tie. You know, Jacob didn't win. You know, seriously, this idea of angels bowing to humans just stops you in your tracks. And the fun part of it is, no specific reason is given for why Adam is so superior to the angels. That's what makes a great story, by the way. Don't overexplain. <laughs> but there are some good theories about this. Adam knows the names, remember. And perhaps it is that knowledge that means he can act autonomously with free will. So he knows things the angels do not, and has a fundamentally different relationship with God. Without free will, angels are just glorified lackeys, immaculate personal assistants. But in Adam, perhaps, God has found something similar to a friend. Sure, a lower being, of course, you know, any being by definition is lower than God, but someone who can think with complexity and choose his own path. After all, is someone truly a friend if they are not free to reject you? Adam is free to reject God. The angels are not. Knowing that God was right, all the angels bowed, except for one. And that one was named Iblis, I-B-L-I-S. Now, at this point, Iblis, as the devil is known in the Quran, is either an angel or a jinn. There isn't a true consensus on which is correct, so he might be a fallen angel, and he might just be a jinn. But the majority of interpretations I have seen believe he is a jinn rather than a fallen angel. His true power, after all, is to whisper to humans. Something which points to him being a djinn. Uh, that's jinn. That's J I N N. For those who don't know, a jinn is basically an invisible spirit made of fire, not too dissimilar from a demon. Um, personally, I lean toward the jinn theory, but unless you're creating some complex Islamic theology, it really doesn't matter what Iblis was. So Iblis objects, telling God, God, you're out of your mind. And why is Iblis so sure that he is better than Adam? Well, it's simple. Iblis is made of fire and Adam is made of mud. No reason is given for why fire is better than clay or mud, but this does give credence to the jinn theory, of course. You know, jinn, after all, are made of fire as their base element. Iblis's problem here is pride. And the Quran tells us this directly. Pride was the reason for Iblis' newfound attitude problem, and he became a disbeliever in this moment, a disbeliever in the sense that he no longer submitted to God and worshipped him. Obviously, he believed God existed, especially because God was in the process of literally telling him to go to hell, but Satan is a disbeliever in that he is disobeying God. Iblis then asks for a reprieve until the day of judgment, the end of the world. And God grants this reprieve and announces that Iblis's job is now to be the enemy of mankind. From Surah 7, Ayat 16 to 18. He said, Now, because thou hast sent me astray, verily I shall lurk in ambush for them on thy right path. This is Iblis talking. Then I shall come upon them from before them, and then from behind them, and then from their right hands, and then from their left hands, and thou wilt not find most of them beholden unto thee. He said, Go forth from hence, degraded, banished, God's talking now, as for such of them as follow thee, talking to Iblis, surely I will fill hell with all of you. I really wish the character of Iblis was developed a bit more in the Quran, Because this is just great, great stuff. Just from a literary perspective, this is amazing stuff. You know, don't you love that last line? Surely I will fill hell with all of you. Powerful and dramatic. Iblis would be a terrific idea for a movie. You know, there are so many creative gaps you could have a field day with in this story. Establishing why Iblis hates Adam so much. And perhaps that he hates God too. On the other hand, side story here, there are some Sufis who actually view Iblis as a tragic hero. Iblis so loved God and was such a true monotheist, he refused to bow to anyone else, even if God directed him to do it. What happens if you love someone and they ask you to kill them, for example? Wouldn't you refuse? This would be similar. Uh, it's interesting stuff, but it's definitely not Muslim orthodoxy. So, anyway, you see the role of Satan, the Islamic Satan, as is pretty similar to the biblical Satan. And why did God allow this? You'll get the same theories from Muslims as from Jews and Christians. It's the same mystery. Perhaps it's God's way of testing and purifying his new species. You know, if you're ever interested in the theological study of why God allows evil to exist, there is an entire discipline dedicated to it. Uh, Just type in theodicy, followed by your chosen religion, into a search engine. That's theodicy, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. So that's the first clash between Adam and Satan in the Islamic story, and it will not be the last. Uh, Here's where we move into a story that will be more familiar to Christians, Adam and Eve and the Forbidden Tree. Actually, let's back up a little here. Uh, Eve has to be created first. Now, the story of the creation of Eve isn't present in the Quran, which often, not always, but often means it is saying by default, just go ahead and follow the biblical story. That's kind of a concept to keep in mind. Islamic tradition and the Hadith hold that Eve was created from Adam's rib, which is consistent with the biblical story. So, same origin for Eve, but a vastly different story. Eve is never named in the Quranic story itself, like I said. Uh, She's just Adam's wife. And unlike in the Bible, she doesn't have any special role. Satan times both Adam and Eve together in the Quran omitting the biblical account of Eve being tempted and then in turn tempting Adam. Still, the story is pretty similar. God tells them to eat anything in the garden, except, of course, the fruit on that particular tree. Eating from that tree will make you wrongdoers. Now Satan comes in, no mention of a snake, telling them, God doesn't want you to approach that tree, because if you do, you will become immortal. So they approach the tree and they realize they're naked. So they try to cover themselves as God comes along like the parent of a small child who can't believe they just did what you just told them not to do. And God says, didn't I tell you not to approach the tree? And didn't I tell you not to trust Satan? But God forgives him and he issues a warning to all humans. From the Quran, uh, Surah 7, Ayat 27. O children of Adam, let not Satan seduce you as he caused your first parents to go forth from the garden and tore off from them their robe of innocence, that he might manifest their shame to them. Lo, he seeth you, he and his tribe, from whence ye see him not. Lo, we have made the devils protecting friends for those who believe not. So there you see you know, the cosmic role for, for Satan and for his pals as protecting friends for those who believe not, meaning they are the friends of the unbelievers. Still, Adam and Eve are expelled from paradise after this. And the previous verse sets up the dynamic we still live with, the believers versus Satan and the unbelievers. Let me say that a little more clearly. The believers Pause. Versus Satan and the unbelievers on the other team. Now, what's being set up here is not a fair fight. Satan and his allies see you, but you do not see them. They contempt and whisper in the shadows, and humans have nothing to strike at them with. That is, except for belief in God and the advice of his messengers and his holy words. But those are only defensive weapons. Humans can't go on offense and take the fight to Satan. Except maybe for throwing rocks at an effigy of him during the Hajj pilgrimage. Satan plays offense. Humans play defense. And it will be like that until the Day of Judgment. So Muslims are fighting a classic defensive war. Batting off the enemy with some pretty great tools. You know, they don't have nothing. But they're unable to destroy the enemy for good. Now, as any general will tell you, you'll do even better if you can go on offense once in a while. Muhammad knew this too. If you just look at his battle tactics later on when he had to fight wars up up, uh, when he was in charge of Medina. So offense. This is where Christianity's take on this is so different and interesting. God went on offense in Christianity. He did it 2,000 years ago. Through the cross, God beat Satan, and he beat death. But really, only in the Christian story was an offensive war even necessary. In Islam, Satan will be st- destroyed in the end, you know, and the good people will enter paradise. But in Christianity, a much grander battle was required. To save his beloved creation, God had to break the claim of Satan on humans, which was set up with the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. Original sin. Islam has no such concept, and this difference can be traced all the way back to the origin stories of the Bible and the Quran. Human nature is not fallen in Islam, almost like Adam and Eve were going to earth anyway. You know, this was just a preparation for what they would find there. The Islamic human is not inherently sinful. He is inherently forgetful. And absent-minded. This is the purpose of the prophet and the books, not to redeem but to guide humans on the path back to God, back to paradise, to find success in this way. And the fact that humans err is totally understandable in both religions, just for different reasons. In Christianity humans err because it's our nature. It just is, as we are. You know, asking why humans sin is like asking the sun why it's obsessed with nuclear fusion. What else is it going to do? It's the freaking sun. It has hydrogen, it has helium, and it's going to do what it knows to do with those two basic elements. And what else are humans going to do but to sin? When facing an imperfect world with an imperfect heart, what else will the fusion of those two elements result in? We're humans, we sin, it's our thing. But in Islam, humans err because they are ignorant, not because they are inherently sinful. They are ignorant because they are confused. And it's hard not to be. For Islam, humans are like someone looking up at the universe and trying to understand how it all works. But the stars can be boring and imperceptible at times and covered by clouds. And there are these planets that are moving too. So how does one figure it out? The human hardware needs a complementary software, something like calculus, to make things clear. Now, calculus is hard, and not too many can teach it. And there are always stupid people telling you to ignore it. It's hard, and besides, it doesn't matter, they will say. But luckily, there's this super handy calculus textbook called the Quran, and a handy workbook in the Hadith. And all the prophets who came before to lay the foundation with basic math and geometry and algebra and all that. That's how you get back to heaven. You grow in knowledge. And not just any knowledge. The reliable knowledge that comes directly from God. And all that goes back to Adam. And yet, in both stories, Adam and Eve end up on earth. And it's a decent, if not perfect, place. But it's not paradise, which lays the ground for the world's first murder. So we're moving on past Adam and Eve and talking about their children briefly here. The story of Cain and Abel makes a cameo in the Quran as well, although they are not actually named Cain and Abel. They're not named at all. Like in the Bible, Cain and Abel make a sacrifice, but Only the sacrifice of the sincere, pious man named Abel is accepted. So Cain gets jealous, and Cain kills Abel. This is summed up in three lines of the Quran, talking about the first murder and the lesson that should be drawn from it. This is uh, Surah 5, or I should say Ayat 27-32. to But recite unto them with truth the tale of the two sons of Adam, how they offered each a sacrifice, and it was accepted from the one of them, and it was not accepted from the other. The one said, I will surely kill thee. The other answered, Allah accepteth only from those who ward off evil. Even if thou stretch out thy hand against me to kill me, this is Abel talking, I shall not stretch out my hand against thee to kill thee. Lo, I fear Allah, the Lord of the worlds. Lo, I would rather thou shouldst bear the punishment of the sin against me and thine own sin and become one of the owners of the fire. That is the reward of evildoers. But the other's mind, going back to Cain here, imposed on him the killing of his brother. So he slew him and became one of the losers. Then Allah sent a raven stretching up, scratching up the ground to show him how to hide his brother's naked corpse. He said, woe unto me, Am I not able to be as this raven, and so hide my brother's naked corpse? And he became repentant. For that cause, we decreed for the children of Israel that whoever killeth a human being for other than manslaughter or corruption on the earth, it shall be as if he had killed all of mankind, and whoso saveth the life of one, it shall be as if he had saved the life of all of mankind." Our messengers came unto them of old with clear proofs of Allah's sovereignty. But afterwards, lo, many of them became prodigals in the earth. So, interestingly enough, the Quran is extrapolating the story of Cain and Abel here, extending it to the entirety of mankind, much like the Bible does this with Adam and Eve and the fall. So we have Cain and Abel, the children of Adam and Eve. Now, the Bible is very concerned with genealogy, who begat whom and all of that. But the Quran? Not so much. And for two major reasons. One, the Quran is not the story of the Hebrew people. It doesn't have the same record-keeping purpose as the Old Testament or even, say, the Gospel of Matthew. And two, The Qur'an is about sermons, not narratives. More often than not, narratives are not told for their own sake. The Qur'an does not just tell a story to tell it. The story is supposed to bolster some other point being made. You know, just like you think it odd if the priest went up there on Sunday and just told a story and then left. No, he's coming back to a point and he's saying, okay, well, here's this story and here's what it means. That's what the Qur'an does. And that's why these stories are scattered all over the Qur'an, like a fragmented hard drive. The main point is the sermon, not the story, because the Qur'an is not literature as classically understood. It's more a collection of sermons than a collection of stories, and certainly not a long arch with a zillion acts with an ultimate beginning and a clear end. And this is something to just kind of drill into your head as we start this series. I have no idea how many it's going to be, but it'll be a lot. Um, So you will see this theme over and over as these episodes progress. And next time we'll jump into the story of Noah and then the multi-faith giant of Abraham. Thank you. And I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah.